0: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, all fellow town travellers who I love so well. We've come a long way together so far on our travels through time and space, and it's been great to have the company. It's been lovely to uh, be making this journey en famille, in the our in family. Uh, this week, our travels through history bring us to the 1600s, and another landmark moment in the story of our species. Now, to help support this podcast, and to get preferential treatment, if you like, every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver site on patreon.com. It's the financial input there that makes the rest of the podcast series possible. So I'll hope to see you there. Okay, now it's time to strap ourselves into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A malarial hellhole. A dangerous and daunting undertaking. A flag raised above the fortifications of what became Jamestown. A formidable character rose to leadership, establishing amiable relationships with the indigenous people. Pocahontas saved his life, twice, attracting more colonists, importing and cementing traditions of individual rights, legal protection and freedom, and so beginning to write a new chapter in the story of this vast continent. Hi Neil. Last week, we stood with you beneath the night sky in 1601 as Kepler pushed ahead with the discoveries that put us Homo sapiens in our place. Where are we this week? Hello again, Paul. Well, this week, it's a strange one in some respects because on the face of it, it's a very small moment, a small thing, a small beginning, but one that has gone on to have massive repercussions in the shaping of the consciousness of part of the world and the development of our species. We're in Virginia. We're in Jamestown, in fact, with a band of intrepid colonists desperately trying to gain a foothold in this vast new world. We're in North America today, Paul. We've spent some time already in Central and South America. We've been there with the Spanish and the Portuguese and we've contemplated how much harm was done to indigenous populations and so on. But now we contemplate, if not for the first time, paying a bit of serious attention to how the North was won, if you like, and the way in which it was quite different. Not deliberately, really. It Just as it so happened, the way in which North America was sort of settled and colonised was quite different than the way in which Central and South America were colonised. And that that difference has made all the difference. It's funny, I suppose, because we take, I say we, um, I certainly take for granted that America North and America South, those two lumps of continent, are utterly different in character you know, that kind of Latin-ness of the South and that kind of, you know, inherently Europeanness of the North. We just sort of accept it. But it is worth paying attention to how and why that is the way it is. And it's a product, a consequence, of the very different ways in which Europe first bumped into the West in the form of the Americas. It was two very different bodies of Europeans, effectively, who made contact with those two different parts of, of the American continent. Spain, obviously, Spain and Portugal. But what matters most, really, is the, is the Spanish effect. And, and they were first out of the blocks when it came to colonising, and they settled and colonised Central and South America in the fifteenth century. So in the in the fourteen hundreds, by the late fourteen hundreds. 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue and all of that. And what what was done by Spain in South America was the establishment of little kingdoms. Uh, Notionally, the overlord was King Philip of Spain, he of the empire upon which the sun never set. We've touched on it before. Philip and his aristos applied a system called encomienda which they had they had evolved and used in Spain as part of the reconquista when they were overthrowing the moorish occupation of part of the iberian peninsula encomienda in effect meant that the king philip would in, would empower some of his nobility basically to rule on his behalf over a tranche of territory and it's in- incredibly arrogant, but they would just lay claim to a, a chunk of the, of the territory with its resident population and they, they entitled themselves to demand the labour of those people in return effectively for a kind of protection, kind of a protection racket, but rather than taking money from the people, they demanded their labour. What they really wanted, what the Spanish nobility and aristos wanted was slavery. But they weren't given it, or they weren't given it blatantly. Encomienda, though, and the way it was applied was slavery by any other name. Uh, They just weren't able to call the resident population their slaves, much though they wanted to and much though they treated them in that way. So, although, in all likelihood, the importing, unknowingly, of all sorts of old-world diseases to the new world, the common cold included, and TB, diphtheria, and the rest... wiped out vast tranches of the populations. But hardship and mistreatment dealt with uh, uncounted numbers as well, sent them to their graves. The Spanish also enforced the Catholic religion, the Catholic faith, forced conversions of the whole population really. And so it meant that in every way that mattered, Central and South America were governed by church and state together. Church and state was dominating the whole place. Spain also claimed the North. You know, that Treaty of Tordesillas of 1494, whereby the Pope divided the whole world, gave Spain everything west of a line and gave Portugal everything east of a line. Well, so Spain claimed North America as well, but it was simply beyond them. They didn't have the manpower, they didn't have the state capacity, they didn't have the resources effectively to govern and make real their claimed ownership of the north. And so others were there, whether they liked it or not. And the English, by the 1500s, were certainly there, roaming in their ships up and down the east coast, prospecting, looking for what was there, You know, wealth and sources of riches and gold and fertile land and, and all of the rest of it did this cause conflict between the the countries yeah notion, notionally but no, nobody was really in a position to do anything about it they were all just getting on with it and while spain might protest that all of that land was theirs there wasn't anything they could do about it the rancor that It certainly existed, you know, the, the Spanish taking umbrage at the way in which England was tampering with what Spain regarded as its property. There's nothing that could be done about it, not in any meaningful sense. Not unless you managed to, you know, replace on the throne of England a Spanish monarch, which obviously was attempted, but never happened. So, in short, by 1585, there was an English colony on the island of Roanoke off the coast of what is what we know as North Carolina so they, they had footfall there got some ships got some people and established something but it just withered and died it was difficult territory they might as well have been arriving on the moon it was sufficiently different and they, they were always taking the wrong stuff you know there was, a, there, was a, there was a steady practice of people you know packing the wrong things for the trip it happened again and again and again, you know, the people were, you know, the, the fabrics and the, you know, the, the wools and the, <laughs> the powdered wigs and things that that tended to go west, that were so not what was needed, and it took people a long time to realise that, but in any event, there was an attempt at settlement of Roanoke, and it just died away, then it was replaced, it was a second attempt made, another batch, you know, 2.0 Roanoke was attempted but then another party, another flotilla of relief ships arrived at Roanoke in 1590, and there was nobody there. You know, it was a real Marie Celeste moment. There was just no one there. And rumours persisted ever after that either they had been massacred by the locals, by the local indigenous people, or a bit more fanciful, the idea that they had been sort of assimilated, spirited away, <laughs> enslaved, who knows. So that that five-year period of trying to make something at Roanoke just fell away completely. But the human species, the aspiring mercantile class, were not to be thwarted, and they kept on coming. And so the moment that matters, this moment in the story of the world, is really, you might as well say it's the 4th of May, 1607, when a flag... An English flag was raised over, well, the, the fortifications, the palisade that had been constructed around a place that would soon be known as Jamestown. It was named after King James the Sixth and First, he that had succeeded Elizabeth on the throne, the combined thrones of of England and Scotland. Hence, Sixth and First, he was the Sixth James of Scotland, but the First James of England. As part of that earlier Elizabethan prospecting that went on, a bunch of of, uh, pioneers dispatched by Sir Walter Raleigh, or some people say Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, but a, a group of prospectors had previously explored more of the eastern seaboard and had claimed a vast swathe of it north of 30 degrees of latitude, and they called it Virginia. There's a familiar name. And it was named that after Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. So Virginia takes its its name from the reputation of Elizabeth I. Here's what matters. In contrast to Spain in the south, in the north, the English model was about private enterprise. It was about letting people have their head, letting private individuals get on with it. James established the so-called Virginia Company of London and it was a, a joint stock company and it was established by James in 1606, so it was established the year before f- the flag was raised over Jamestown and what, what it boiled down to was that the, the, the adventurers, they would shoulder the risk, both personal, which was huge, and financial but if they got anywhere, the crown would help itself to a share of any profits. But in the doing of it, they were just like right, go and get on with, go and get on with it as private individuals. So among this this contingent that, that turned up and, and established what became Jamestown was an individual known well with the very anonymous-sounding name of John Smith. He was a sometime mercenary soldier. You know, he'd won his battle scars fighting the Spanish and also the Ottoman. Turks. He was born into very modest circumstances. He was the son of a Lincolnshire tenant farmer. So he'd had a bit of an adventurous life, And then, but, and he, but he was back in England at the right time and with the foresight to get himself involved in Raleigh's scheme. He got himself aboard one of the ships. It has to be said that he was a handful, and he was enough of a handful aboard ship that long before they arrived... Long before they managed to cross the Atlantic, he was in shackles in the hold for some or other misbehaviour. But fortunately for all concerned, uh, when they arrived, they kept him alive. There was every possibility that they could have just executed him for his troublesome nature. But they kept him around, which was hugely important because they had arrived in a malarial hellhole. And as usual, you know, the feckless aristos and upper class types that were notionally running the the operation were hopeless. And things got desperate quickly. And if, I mean, rather than visualising settlers and colonists, they were like, they might as well have been survivors of a shipwreck. They were scratching for survival. And fortunately for all concerned, Smith was there and Smith had enough nous to know what he was doing and so it was it was his leadership not not single-handed but he he had his hand on the tiller you might say, and he got them through he got them through those first desperate days weeks and months Smith subsequently kind of bigged up his part and here's where things will become familiar for a lot of people listening he almost certainly elaborated on whatever were the basics of his connection to Pocahontas. And Pocahontas was the daughter of the chief of the local Pohatan indigenous tribe. And Smith had the wisdom to get in with him. You know, he saw the necessity to make friends, so to influence people. So whatever is the truth of What's come down to this, as a sort of towering uh, love affair with Pocahontas, he he was he was definitely connected to Pocahontas, and he he definitely used that relationship, uh, and, and not necessarily in an exploitative way. He had the wisdom to cultivate the relationship with the Powhatan tribe. So, is she supposed to have saved his life? Yes, he he made much of that, you know that he that he originated that that great story. He was a drama. He was a he was a dramatist. I mean, who knows? It it may have happened. Uh, it's just that it it seems in all likelihood that he had a he had a fairly, uh, you know, expansive <laughs> imagination, and uh, possibly exaggerated it all just in the storytelling. But it, it was founded on truth. There was a relationship there. But in any event, the the first those first months were cl- a close run thing. Jamestown lived through what was remembered, what was what was reported as the starving time. So there was a bedding-in period where there was barely enough upon which to subsist and and where they were dependent upon whatever help they could get from the locals. However, Jamestown, in contrast to what had happened at Roanoke, Jamestown held on in there. And by the early years of the second decade of the 17th century, so from 1610 onwards, it was establishing itself and becoming a serious presence. And what with its name, because of its association, back in England, its association with the king, was enough to lure people. So more ships made their way with people on a one-way ticket. People who burnt their boats, so to speak, and made lives and homes for themselves in Jamestown. And what matters, again, what matters is that they brought with them from England all the English traditions of individual rights. You know, rather than the whole thing being directly managed as a kingdom, it was private property. People were encouraged to go out there, claim what they could for themselves, and be protected under the law, under an imported English law. Uh, So any uh, aspiring, entrepreneurial type was able to go and make of himself, herself whatever they could and that tradition whereby everyone was equal, every individual out there was was to be treated equally under the law and what you could make of yourself was, was your own and you could benefit from it that became the foundations of the United States of America that ethos that a person had inalienable rights and had the opportunity to go out into a a new and free open space and there make what they could of themselves was profoundly different from the notion of encomienda and going out and enslaving people and and putting people under the yoke and the whole thing just being an extension of the, the kingdom something altogether happened private enterprise and that that difference between society based on with roots going all the way back to encomienda, in contrast to what was there in the north is what explains the fundamental differences between the characters of North America and South America and to this day it explains why migration in the Americas is almost always from south to north let's say we're living through dangerous and changeable times at the moment in North America, but it has always been the case up until now that if you wanted freedom and a better life you travelled from south to north. In the later Middle Ages the feudal system was on the wane merchants, inventors and entrepreneurial dynamism all on the rise Written in Greek and Latin, the Bible was out of reach to the mass of the people. Then Gutenberg's printing press, Martin Luther, and increasing popular demand saw it translated into languages people actually spoke. From this inventive furnace came a version of the Bible that helped cement the English language. The language that went on to become the language of the world, the language of the internet. Like no other, it was the book that changed the world. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's A Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.